Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Business of Freelancing podcast. Today, we'll be discussing pricing with our guest, Jonathan Stark. Hey, Jonathan. Hello. Good to see you guys. As usual, I'm here with Eric Dietrich. Hey, everybody. And I'm Reuven Lerner. And indeed, this is great, great fun to have Jonathan around. We used to do a podcast together way back when in the before times. And uh, Jonathan, before we jump into the topic at hand, tell us a little bit about yourself or tell everyone else a little bit about yourself since we know you. Sure. I'm a former software developer who is now on a mission to rid the world of hourly billing. I run a couple of different podcasts. I'm the host of Ditching Hourly. I'm the co-host of The Business of Authority. And I have a daily mailing list on pricing for independent professionals that's been going every day since July 26th, 2016. So I've got about 2,000 or so messages about this topic. Wow. Okay. That's very impressive and amazing. So let's like start off by just sort of defining our terms or even like thinking about it. Because someone wants to start freelancing and they know that they're doing this to make money. And the question is, okay, well, how much money are they going to make? So everyone has to sort of attach a price to what they're doing. But that then like opens up more or less an infinitely large space for doing pricing. I can say when I started doing it, I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, in general, I was like, well, I've always heard people charge by the hour. So also charge by the hour. How much? I don't know. (laughs) So I chose a number. The client seemed okay with it. And we went from there. And I started trying to inch it up and ratchet it up. And at some point, well, as we'll get to soon enough, you know, I sort of maxed out the possibility on that. And I'm sure that my story is not unique. Correct. So you speak to freelancers all the time. Tell us how people in general approach pricing when they start off. What happens to them in more detail than I just described to me? Sure. And I had the same experience you did where I had a job, I got good at a skill and I became dissatisfied with the job. So I went solo and The question that you ask yourself isn't, what should my business model be or how should I price my work? The question immediately is, what should my hourly rate be? You just immediately skip over those questions and then you're like, okay, what should it be? And so there are a few ways that people do it, but I think it kind of boils down to how big your ego is. So you look at other people who are doing what you do and you think, well, I'm better than they are or I'm not as good as they are, so I will charge less or more per hour and I get this all the time, they think, oh, I price my work, I price my time. It's $100 an hour, it's $200 an hour. I'm like, that's not a price. That's like going into a Subway sandwich shop and saying, hey, I'd like a pulled pork sandwich. And they say, you know, how much is it going to be? And they say, oh, $60 an hour. (laughs) It's like not a price because they're not buying your hour. They don't end up with 25 hours and you end up with 23. They want you to do something for them that is going to make their business better. And they believe that someone like you can do something that's going to take their business from where it is to where they want it to be. They want some outcome. That's the thing you price. But that's a huge topic, and we'll get to that. Because I love the idea of defining some terms here. The one that we're talking about here is that billing is not pricing. Sending an estimate to somebody is not pricing. A price, this isn't 100% true strictly speaking, but in the context of this conversation, a price is deciding how much you will accept in exchange for something and then presenting that to a prospective buyer. So they know in advance the final number before they decide. And this shouldn't be shocking to anyone 
if you think about it from a buyer standpoint. How many things do you buy every day or decide to buy every day that you don't know the final price before you buy it? That coffee that you buy, that car that you bought, the house that you bought, you know the price before you buy it. Insure fees and taxes and blah, blah, blah. But you know the price. It's not going to be double. Like if you go, you know, go like, oh, I'm going to buy a new Subaru. And the salesperson says, well, I'm not really sure how much it's going to be. It'll probably be about $30,000. But why don't you take it? You can have it. And I'll send you a bill for that car after a year. Right. When you put it this way, it's clearly absurd. And yet, I think for my first five, maybe even 10 years of freelancing, I would put incredible effort into my estimates, trying to make them incredibly, incredibly detailed. And I know now that my clients ignored everything I wrote, except for the last two or three lines, which said how much it was going to cost. And if I said it'll be between $1,000 and $5,000, they said, oh, it'll be 1000 And anything above that minimum, they took to be as highway robbery. And it wasn't that I was trying to be dishonest. It was that we were speaking completely different languages. Yeah. As you've taught me to realize, like our interests were misaligned, that I actually had an interest in making it longer, making it more complicated, and they had an interest in keeping the price as low as possible. And so we were just sort of talking past each other. Yeah. So let's define a few more terms. So we said billing is not pricing. Billing is like pricing in arrears. So eventually, at some point, you find out how much the project was, how much money exchanged hands. And technically, that's the price. But I, it's not fair to call it that because the client wasn't able to make an informed decision when they needed to upfront. You know, it reminds me of the kind of like worst experience you have as a consumer. Like if you think of where you go to the mechanic or you're dealing with a contractor, you take your car to the mechanic and you say, what's it going to cost to have this problem solved? And they're like, I don't know, probably like $800, but who knows? I won't know until I get in there. It strikes me on the consuming end of that. And, you know, there's probably customers out there that feel this way like, that is just awful. I think you've said before, it's like somebody pokes a hole in your wallet. And it's leaking. And money just drips out until somebody stops it. Right. Stop the, your wallet's bleeding money. Stop the bleeding. So here's three terms that I want to key off of what Ruben just said. And same with the car metaphor. Because the mechanic is thinking, well, I can't give you a price because I don't know how much work it's going to be until I get in there and I've already done some work. The same with Ruben, you know, and I used to do big software projects, same thing. As the seller, you're focused on, and this is the vocabulary word, your cost. And by and large, the lion's share of our cost, whatever you do, if you're a freelancer of any kind that I can think of, your cost is your time. You know, So you feel like that's what you're selling, but you're really not. That's just your cost. It's like you know, if I need to buy 100 gallons of water and 100 pounds of salt, sugar, and all of the things that go into a can of Coke, those are my costs. The buyer doesn't care how much you spend on water or sugar or whatever else goes in the soda. But you need to be aware of it or you're going to lose money because you're going to price yourself too low. So I understand that the cost, it's important. It's not unimportant, but it's not what the buyer cares about. The buyer's not buying a bunch of water and sugar. The buyer's not buying a bunch of hours from you, even though that's your cost to deliver it. What the buyer wants is value. They want some outcome that is valuable, like the car example. Like you bring your car in and I can't get to work. The thing doesn't run. I have it towed into the shop. The seller and the mechanic is going to be often cases really focused on their cost and therefore they're going to de-risk the whole situation for them by charging by the hour. So they can't lose money, air quotes. On the other hand, the buyer, I don't care if it takes you 100 hours to get my car running or if it takes one hour to get my car running. I just want my car running and how much that's worth to me is the value. 
that's what I'm buying. I'm buying a running car. I'm buying an ability to get to work under my own control. If I drop off the car and the person like jiggles a wire, waves a magic wand, and I come back tomorrow to pick it up and it's $200, I don't care how long it took them. I really don't. So what I'm really buying is the running car, the transformation from the way I was to the way I am now. And this is a gigantic mind shift for freelancers because they're unaccustomed to taking any risk at all. They just want work to show up and they'll do the work, track their time. And I put in the hours, you owe me the money. It's an employee mentality that surely comes from, and the reason why we've done it, I think probably all of us, maybe not Eric, maybe he's too smart for it. Oh no, I, I used to bill by the hour when I was first on my own. Right. <laughs> so you probably came out of a job and you have this employee mentality. You really don't know about all of the craft of building a business. You're not even thinking, I'm going to build a business where I sell freelance services. You think, I'm going to be a freelancer. That's a big mind shift. Actually, I'm going to push back on that a little bit because I, first of all, I have these grandiose dreams of building a huge business, which, okay, fine. I'm smarter now. Okay. But like, I think I was modeling myself on all these agencies that I'd heard about and seen. Okay. And I was like, oh, well, that's the way people do it. And I knew that accountants did. I knew lawyers did it. I was like, okay, this is the standard way that professionals charge for their services. Now I'm a professional giving services. Thus, I should do that. Okay. That's fair. And there is a way to create leverage there, which is going to be our next vocabulary word. But so just to wrap up this cost price value thing, the way to think of it is if we imagine that our freelancer is the seller, the cost is the least amount of money they would accept to do whatever's required. So that's your floor. That is the least amount of money you could charge. You have a dollar less and you'd be like, you know what? This isn't even worth it. I'm not even going to do it. So that's your cost. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got a buyer who wants some kind of transformation. They want you to contribute to some goal, some change that is a before and after. Before we hired this person, before we hired Alice, our business was like this. After we hired Alice, it was like that. So it's like, okay, that's what they're buying. And the value is the maximum amount of point money they would pay for that transformation or that contribution. So ideally, <laughs> the cost is lower than the value. But it's not always, which is how you end up getting into fights with clients when you end up billing twice as much as you estimated. And now they have paid more than it was worth to them in the first place. That's when you get monster clients because you've kind of screwed them over. And people will argue like, well, no, they didn't tell me everything they should have told me, whatever. But they're in this situation where they have paid more than it's worth to them. And if they had known how much it was going to cost up front, they would have said no thank you. Now, ideally, what happens is the cost is lower than the value. And in great situations, it's way lower. There's a gigantic delta between how much it's going to cost to deliver a particular service and what it's worth to the buyer. And if that's the situation, then you can set a price up front anywhere in that delta. Ideally, it would be somewhere toward the middle. It depends on how big the delta is. There's some psychology that goes into this. But it's going to be somewhere in between what it would cost for you to deliver and how much it's worth the outcome that you deliver is worth to them. And those three numbers, cost, price, and value, are wildly interchanged. Value is this very hazy thing that some people just think is BS. You can just think of value as the most someone would pay for the transformation. You know, So to get this car running, it's not worth more than 500 bucks to me because I only paid 500 bucks for this car. It's a junker. So if the cost to the mechanic is like 50 hours of rebuilding the transmission and he needs to charge $2,000 for that, but it's only worth 500 to me, 
then there's no deal. We can't come to an agreement and I need to think of a different solution like buy a new car. Oh, so you surfaced a transaction up front that shouldn't happen as opposed to surfacing that later. Exactly, right. But when it's too late, like Ron Baker says, hourly billing is like trying to measure the doneness of chocolate chip cookies with a smoked event. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's too late. You can't undo it. You can't take back the time. And the thing that freaks the freelancers out about this is, first of all, they have no idea what transformation they're providing is they don't even think about it that way. They don't even talk to the client about that. Nobody has like what I call the why conversation. They're just like, oh, someone wants to pay me money at my exorbitant hourly rate. I will start the meter running and I'll just do what they tell me until they tell me to stop. In a scenario like that, the client does want something that's equivalent to the broken car running. They want some outcome. They typically don't share it without you asking. They think they can tell you what to do to get that outcome. So they're kind of driving you. It's like a backseat driver in a cab. So if you're an expert at what you do and you're letting them backseat drive the project, it's going to be no wonder that they take a really inefficient route to the goal, especially if you don't even know where they're going. You're just like, all right, I'll turn left. Now I'll go faster. Okay, now turn right. Okay, you turn. Okay. That's how these projects spiral out of control because nobody has found out or not everybody knows where the target is. So there you are blindfolded, just shooting at random or blindfolded driving this cab around with them instructing you from the back seat. The wrong person's driving, you know? In general, what I would say is you shouldn't even take on a project unless you know what the desired outcome is. And that's like, you shouldn't take someone in the back of your cab if you don't know where they want to go. It's the equivalent of them saying, just drive. And it's like, okay, I mean, I guess you can make an income that way, but it's probably going to lead to a lot of stress and a lot of fighting and a lot of dissatisfaction, which is bad for your business. So the main thing to take away from this portion of the vocabulary lesson is that in an ideal scenario, cost would be low, the value would be very high, and the price would be somewhere in between. And everybody should roughly know all of those things up front. And if the scope is very unknown and the client doesn't know what they want, then maybe there's no deal. But maybe the client knows exactly what they want and it's very valuable. And you can set a price that's a fraction of that number that you'd be happy to do for 500 hours. Maybe you can do it in 100. Maybe you can do it in five. If it takes 500, you'll still be in good shape because your effective hourly rate would still be higher than you normally get. So if you can find a very high value project, clients that have very high value outcomes that they value greatly, they're going to really be a huge transformation for their business. And you can contribute to that even in a small way. You can set your price really high and then figure out your scope after. I say scope last, not scope first. If you're scoping first, you haven't figured it out. So in your travels, I know you work with a lot of people that are in business for themselves on this sort of thing, especially if we have folks listening that are early stage freelance journey or whatever. One thing I'd like to have you address is, you know, the world funnels you towards billing by the hour. It's what everybody listening is assuming they're going to do. I'm going to go on to Upwork. I'm going to declare that my hourly rate is X and I can make a pretty good living that way. So I guess what I'm asking is what's the downside to doing that since it's a well-worn path to earning money? And what's the downside and like what might people notice in their life that might be a symptom of these downsides that maybe they don't realize? Like, is there something you bump into after a while of freelancing where you start to feel the pain of, quote, pricing by the hour versus other strategies? So the big one would be that it puts an artificial ceiling on your income. So you can get to a nice, comfortable income billing hourly, but you can't get past it. 
unless you create some leverage, which is going to be our next vocabulary word. So if you cannot create leverage with hourly billing, it's very difficult to create leverage with hourly billing. There's a couple of well-worn ways, like Reuben pointed out, building an agency, getting a bunch of cheap talent and marking up their hours. That is a way to create leverage in an hourly model. You still come up against the same thing. It's a linear growth path because you're going to have to start raising their salaries over time. You have to keep adding people. You're adding organizational and management overhead. So you got to add like six people before you really start to feel the benefit of the leverage, you know, unless you can get them incredibly cheap, but then you've got a quality issue. It's very, very complicated. The scenario where I'm not a big fan of creating leverage through the agency model is when the person doesn't really want to be a boss. They're just doing it because it's the only way they see. If you do not strive, you don't endeavor to be a great boss, a leader, then don't build a team. That's how bad bosses are created. Like they don't want to be a boss, but they feel like they have no other choice. So they hire a bunch of people and they're a terrible boss. And management is hard and it takes a lot of time. Like when I had a team working for me, I somehow had this illusion that I could manage them and also do some of the development work. And so I did. And I was lucky that my employees were generally pretty independent and smart and did things. But like I was spending a lot of time managing in, in addition to a lot of time developing software. And it ate up a lot of time. And I'm sure that looking back, you know, if I were honest, I wasn't the best of bosses either. <laughs> you bring up an interesting point, which is once you have enough of those people and the management duties are sufficient, you know, all the job postings and one-on-ones, annual reviews, the hiring, the onboarding, the, the morale, the offsites, the team building, all of that stuff, you are now not doing what you started the business to do in the first place. And as long as that's a conscious decision, but if you're a software developer and you think you're going to hire a bunch of juniors and you're still going to be a software developer, you are wrong. You are going to be a boss. So you're going to be a manager. You're going to be doing HR, accounting, and you can outsource some of these things, but it's just a totally different model. If that's what you want to do, it does work. You can do that. But I think it's only a good fit for someone who really wants to be a good leader and is willing to walk away from their old identity as a software developer or a photographer or whatever and become a manager, a boss, a leader. So that's fine. If you want to do that, that totally works. This is for the people that don't want to do that or just don't love that idea. There's something about it they don't like. It feels unfair to the employees. You know, There's a whole bunch of reasons you might not want to do that. So with that exception, there's no way to scale an hourly business that I am aware of. You cannot raise your hourly rate fast enough to keep up with your lifestyle increases. In my experience, people almost never raise their hourly rates anyway. It's rare that I meet someone that raises them every year. And if they have lots of long-term clients, it's just very difficult to have the conversation where on Friday, you were $100 an hour and on Monday, you're 200 What changed? I want more money. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't work. You've trained them that you're worth $100 an hour. And then with new clients, the most expensive Rails developer on Upwork, and somebody can sort by price and find someone who's got just as many good reviews, just as many successful projects, that's $20, $50 an hour, $100 an hour. How are you going to land that business? You're just undifferentiated in a marketplace like that. So that's another symptom is that you're losing work to people who you believe are less qualified than you. But the reality that's staring you in the face is that your buyers cannot see a meaningful difference between you and the next person other than your hourly rate, maybe your star rating. 
Yeah. So I think it's worth calling out and probably like newbie freelancers wouldn't really appreciate this. Say you're in software engineering, you go out and you hang out your shingle and you say, I'm worth $60 an hour and you start doing that. You wouldn't appreciate this, but there is a cap on that. Like the market sets a cap and on a long enough timeline, you will hit that cap. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, is that kind of what we're talking about here? Like, I can't think of anything with just like unlimited hourly rate raise, like any role out there that people contract for. It's kind of like a book, like nobody pays more than like 50 bucks for a book. There's just some ceiling above which people just really did. Is that what we're kind of talking about here that you would hit the ceiling as a hourly biller? Yeah, so 100%. So we're getting into a situation here. If you're presenting yourself as a Rails developer, a Python developer, then you're giving the potential clients, leads, buyers, or people searching Upwork or wherever they're searching, you're giving them a handle to search for. You're giving them a search term and you're allowing it. You're allowing yourself to be commoditized as just one of many Rails developers, just one of many Python developers. You haven't done the work that a business owner would do to differentiate themselves as the, instead of just one of many, you need to be the one and only. You need to position yourself as the go-to person for some specialty or niche or area of expertise or something. And is that a smaller addressable market? Yes, that's the point. So you can make some kind of an impact. You know, if I looked this up once, the ocean has, I think it's 3.5 trillion fish in it, estimated. So why wouldn't I fish in the ocean? There's 3.5 trillion fish there. And I say, well, okay. Or what if I had a swimming pool in the backyard that had 1,000 rainbow trout in it? Would you rather fish in the ocean that has, I don't know, 300 million times the number of fish in it as this pool? Or would you rather just be scooping them out with your little net? So like when people say, they imagine in the ocean you're fishing with a bigger net. No, you're fishing in a bigger body of water. You have the same size net. And if you're a soloist, your net is really small. So would you rather fish in the ocean with this teeny little butterfly net, or would you rather go to a pool stocked with a thousand fish that are practically jumping into your bucket? And then they think, yeah, but why would I pick a thousand over 3.5 trillion? And it's like, because they're way easier to catch. Yeah. And how many fish can you eat anyway? That's the other thing that like, I hadn't really thought about it when I started freelancing. I was like, oh, well, I want as many clients as I can get. And now I'm as busy as I'll get out and I've got, let's call it 10 clients a year, 15 clients a year. And I really want to sort of expand the definition there. Mm-hmm. Like there's a limit as to how many people I can service and service well, especially if I'm doing training, it's blocked off in days or in weeks and my schedule's full. So I don't need to go where there are going to be a thousand clients. I need to go where there are 10 clients who really want what I do and how I do it. Mm-hmm. And then it's much easier for us to talk about everything else for sure. Right. And here's the crazy thing. This is where the metaphor might break down. The crazy thing is, if you're extremely well-known in the small pond, the pool, then fish from other pools come looking for you anyway. For years, all of my marketing was specifically directed at the old me, the old independent software developer. You know, like someone who's self-employed, doesn't want to build a big team. Maybe they've got a tiny firm or one partner or something like that, but it's just a small shop in terms of headcount. But they do want to create leverage in the business And they have recognized that billing by the hour is a hamster wheel, that they've been making the same amount of money for four years. So like to Eric's earlier question, how do you know when you've hit the top of the hourly rate or whatever? It's like when you're working harder than ever and you're still not getting ahead and you start to think, 
I'll never be able to retire. Like this isn't working. Something's broken. I'm stuck. So they're looking for some kind of leverage. And what happens is if you focus way down and you become a big fish in a small pond, it's like fish from other ponds can still see you. Like you're so big in that pond and that word of mouth and social media being what it is. It's not just me. I know a lot of people with this same story. They would come to me and say like, I'm a web designer. I know you specialize in software developers and not designers, but could I please join your coaching program? They're like, I'm doing them a favor to take their money. So the irony is that focusing down on that 1,000 true fans, or what do you want to call it, whatever segmentation you pick for that niche, it doesn't actually turn away anybody else. It just allows you to make such a clear message that it's so clear that even people for whom it is not intended can understand it. So your copy on your website, wherever else you do your marketing, people get it. Like they understand what it means finally. It's not just like, oh, we're smart people solving hard problems for great clients. It's like, oh my God, you know, you actually know what to write. So there's an intense irony in there, but I recognize there's big fear around excluding anybody else by talking to anyone specific. But, you know, the cliche is if you sell to everyone, you're selling to no one. So we've teased the term leverage here a few times is this a good time to define it? Because I think it, I've written about this some myself, assuming I'm inferring the correct definition here, but I think it's something that's hard for especially new freelancers to kind of grok out of the gate. So I'd love to hear your definition of this and what it means. Yeah. Well, so think of it in the mechanical term, like a lever. So what does a lever allow you to do? Multiply your force. What does that mean? It means the amount of effort that you use to push the lever down is multiplied on the other end of the lever. So like, could I lift up a bus? No, but if I have a long enough lever and a fulcrum, I can wedge this lever underneath the bus. And with my little amount of force, the little amount of force gets multiplied by the machine and it lifts up the bus. That's the literal definition. You want to find a metaphorical parallels in your business. And the insidious thing about charging for your time is that you are penalized for anything that you would do to create leverage. Almost anything that you would do to create leverage would save you time and that would cost you money. So your brain just doesn't think of that stuff. It's not like you're like, oh, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to buy a faster computer. I'm not going to automate the system. I'm not going to build boilerplate code that I can use on every project. You don't consciously rule those things out. They just don't occur to you because why would they? Be like, hmm, why don't I cut my foot off? because well, that would be dumb. <laughs> so you don't think of all these things that would be dumb. And it would be dumb to become more efficient. It would be dumb to become better at what you do. It'd be dumb to invest in tools. It'd be dumb to do any of those things because you're financially incentivized to be as slow as possible. So doing anything that would make you faster or better would penalize you. I always say like hourly billing punishes expertise. Well, my theory when I was starting off was if I'm way better than other people and way faster, then I can charge more per hour because I am so much better. And so I'll do more, sort of move up that ladder as it were. But yeah, I discovered a while ago that, I mean, I could raise my rates a bit and maybe because I was a senior person, I was smarter, I was better, I was more experienced, whatever it was. But it was sort of marginal as time went on, my ability to raise rates was squeezed more and more down to the point where I couldn't do it anymore, in part because they didn't care if I was smarter, better, more experienced, because already virtually everyone was billing a third to a half of what I was. They were like, you might be twice as good, but you're not three times as good. And even if you are, we don't care. 
right? And a lot of places also had caps on what they were willing to pay based on standard market rates. So I basically priced myself out of the market. And right, so then I had no incentive to be faster, better. And I don't think it was conscious, but I don't think I was like, you know, going to go out of my way to be way more efficient. Right. Certainly not buying more equipment to be more efficient. Right. Yeah. You just don't think of it. I tell the story. I was at a firm where we had about 10 or 15 developers in any given year. I was the VP. I answered directly to the owner. And it was my responsibility to do most of the proposals, do all the hourly estimates. We build everybody out at a blended rate, 150 an hour. And I had to keep them busy. I had to send out hours invoices or make sure that they got sent out. I had to whip the developers every week to get their hours in by Friday at five so we could get them out on Monday morning. It was hours, 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 hours. And I realized at one point that uh, we were probably losing money on our best guy because his salary was twice as much as our most junior developer. And we built him out at the same hourly rate. He was really fast and really good. So he finished things quickly and didn't need to refactor anything or do any rework. Now our most junior person, who was basically an intern, was slow, not great, needed to redo stuff, needed lots of conversations, not quick on the uptake, so forth. You know, he's new, whatever, he's green. Uh, it's normal. But what I couldn't get my head around was if we were going to fire someone, we'd have to fire our best guy. Like my brain went through all these gymnastics of like, no, we're lucky to have that guy. He attracts more talent. He helps train the other developers or he's great to be around. So I'm like doing all these things. I'm like, well, wait a second though. If we just look at the dollars for a second, all those things were true. Both of these developers are keeping their customers perfectly happy and we are breaking even on this one and we are printing money with that one. And that was screwed up. I was like, that is wrong. <laughs> the junior guy should be a liability. It should be someone that we're grooming to turn into something better. Why would I train him? Why would I try and make him better at what he does? He's perfect in the hourly model. He's perfect in the hourly model. I hadn't thought about it. I mean, agencies all have lots of junior people. And I mean, they have some senior people, but lots of junior people. And this might explain like, you know, how you can make money as an agency or part of it at least. Yeah, that's where the leverage comes from. Cheap talent. Yeah, it makes me think as a thought exercise, imagine you could in 10 minutes crank out a completely bespoke, beautiful website. If you set an hourly rate of $200 an hour, you would be generating what, like 48 of these a day? <laughs> like your $1,600 a day. And that seems like pretty disproportionate. And I guess back to your earlier point, why would you ever get so good and so efficient at building websites that you could do it in 10 minutes if people expect it to take weeks? Right. Now you've got weeks of billable time. The idea of leverage and not wanting it in an hourly business is a powerful one. Right. So let me give you an example. Since you mentioned websites, I've interviewed this guy, Ben Manley, a couple of times. I've even hired him a couple of times and I've even referred students to him a couple of times because he runs this company called Knapsack Creative and they build you a beautiful website in a day, one day. And they have a absolutely brilliant system set up, you know, to be able to deliver on that promise. And their promise is that you will have a website that you are proud of at the end of the day. And that is an extremely compelling value proposition for many people, both the proud of because so many people are embarrassed by their website and the one day because they all think a website is a giant project and it's overwhelming. They don't know how they're going to do it. So as long as they find that claim to be credible, they believe that it's not just BS, then it's super attractive to a lot of people. Should he charge by the hour for that? Hell no. 
he's not selling his hours to these people. He's selling the transformation to the people. And he knows what the transformation is worth to the kind of person that message resonates with. So he can set a price for it. And it's not even fair to call it a day rate because he's created so much leverage around the productized service, the deliverable, if you want to call it that, or the outcome, that he can do it easier and better and quicker over time so that his costs go down the better he gets at it. And the delight in the end user goes up. So the cost goes down, the value goes up as he gets better and better and better. That's the way it should work. Even if you're a freelancer, even if you build websites, it should work like that. It should work like you lower your costs, increase the value, and then your price can float in the middle somewhere. So Ben can raise his prices over time up to the point where he starts hitting the value of the kinds of people that he's attracting. On top of it, he's got so much free time because of all the systems and automation and the process that's in place that he can take on a lot of clients. So I don't know how many websites he builds in a week. He's got a small team. There's like a customer satisfaction. And I think two people who build these Squarespace sites for people, you know, it's like a typical small web development shop, but instead of renting themselves out by the hour or renting away their life minutes, as I like to put it, they've come up with a system that benefits from optimization, benefits from standardization and allows them to deliver a better product more quickly like I can't imagine getting somebody off Fiverr and paying them any amount of dollars per hour to have a website done in a day. It would be a disaster. You know, if I put on my business owner hat, just for people listening out there too, so I have a business and we're actually going to be soon in the market to have our website redone. For me, I don't care how many hours or days of labor it takes someone. I would pay more to have it done in a day for the same, you know, output as for a month, because I want it to be a solved problem in a day. I don't want to keep dealing with it for a month. Yeah. So I'm throwing that out there with the business owner's hat on for a freelancer to make it clear, like, you don't need to, you know, martyr yourself or whatever you want to call it. There's no value to me and you spending a lot of blood, sweat and tears. I want my problems solved quickly. Yeah, I think that's a really cool concept. We'll wrap this all up for you in a day. It'll be a solved problem and move on. I'm not then in my head going to say $10,000 and two people for eight hours. Like, I don't care. Yeah. I just care that my website is done. And it's not even $10,000. So even people listening who don't consider themselves to be business owners, although if you are a freelancer, that is what you are, then I would say if you've ever had any kind of like construction or work done on your house or somebody built a stone wall in front of your yard or anything like that, would you rather have it take longer or would you rather have it be done quicker? Even if the price was exactly the same, would you rather have it take longer or shorter? Nobody ever wants like a team of workmen banging on their house for a month instead of a week. You'd much rather have it done in a day. A tree limb fell in our garage and I just called somebody that was recommended and they came out and they said, it's going to be, I don't know, it was like three grand or something. And they came with a dumpster. They came with trucks and cranes and tools and they swarmed that roof and it was done before lunch. And I was like, yes. <laughs> like, I just wanted them gone. I don't want a dumpster in my driveway for two weeks. So I have to park in the street or I can't get my garbage out. Like, I don't want it to take longer. Nobody wants it to take longer. There's an interesting psychology that is at play here that we could talk about just quickly. The concept is if someone believes that you are 
wildly profiting and you are barely profiting, they will cut off their nose to spite their face. So there are some scenarios that argue that you want your price to be somewhere near the middle of the difference between the cost and the value. You know, it's more art than science. It's some guesswork going on here. But if you take all of the value of the transaction from the buyer, they can sometimes get mad about it. So in practical experience, I would say no one's going to give you a million dollars for 10 minutes of work. It's highly unlikely. I'm sure examples exist, but to an audience like this, it's highly unlikely that someone's going to give you a million dollars for 10 minutes and that there's a price, even if that causes them to make $1.5 million. So they make $0.5 million, you know, $500,000, and you make a million in 10 minutes. But it's a situation where the buyer will fail to take the profit. Even though they would end up with more money, they're like, it's not fair for you to make all the money when I'm the one taking all the risk. Mm -hmm. So we've been dancing around it a little bit. But like, okay, so given cost and value, and the price is somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. If I'm a freelancer, at the end of the day, I need to be able to say, okay, it's going to cost you X Mm -hmm. in order to do this job. How do I figure out what that cost should be? How much do I propose to them without going the whole hourly route? Yeah, and maybe like in general, so what are the alternatives? I guess it occurs to me, we haven't talked through that. Like, What are the alternative pricing models that they could do and how do they pick those prices? Yep. So much stuff there. And by the way, it's inequity aversion Mm. is the term. So yeah, Wikipedia inequity aversion. All right. So what do you do instead? Depends on how you want your business model to go. So there's different business models here. The one I usually start with is value pricing. This answers both of your questions. So like one approach is to stop going into a sales meeting, trying to pitch and find out all the scope. And then in your mind, you're trying to quickly estimate how many hours that might be. Maybe you go back to your office and you really brainstorm with yourself about like all the things that might happen. And maybe you're even so good at it and so experienced that you come up with some kind of an estimate. It ends up being reasonably accurate. Instead of doing that, there's another way to approach that whole sales interview and then the proposal writing process and then the delivery of the project. So if you are doing project work, then value pricing is a different way to approach that whole ecosystem, the whole life cycle of the project. And, you know, I've written tens of thousands of words on this, but just to kind of break it down as quickly as possible, when somebody sends an email, they say, hey, Alice told me that you're great. You're exactly who we need. Can we jump on the phone? And what's your hourly rate? And you say, I don't have an hourly rate. If that's acceptable, then I'll jump on the phone. They'll say, how do you price your work? And you'll say, I give you a price. So you know in advance how much it's going to be. Is that acceptable? So yeah, that would be great. All right, cool. Let's jump on the phone. So you jump on the phone. Instead of trying to find out the scope, you're going to scope last. You're going to say, instead of that, tell me about the project. Tell me what you're, you know, brain dump. Just brain dump. And they're going to give you a bunch of feature requests. They're going to give you a bunch of details because they've self-diagnosed. They know enough to be dangerous or whatever. And they're going to say, we need you to do this, that, and the other. Make the blacker, make the buttons bigger, put the logo over here, whatever. Here's a spreadsheet of features that the team wants to have included in the app, whatever. Thanks for all that. I've got a bunch of notes, but let's back up because there are a hundred different ways I could build this. So I want to understand how it's going to fit into your business once it's done. Once it launches, how are you going to know that it's working? You know, it's not just a question of like, yeah, the code works. Like what's the business context that this is going to be launched into? What do you want it to do for your business? And a good client will love this. They will sit back and they're like, oh, that's such a great question. I'm glad you asked that. Bad clients that you should run away from will say, why do you need to know that? 
I just told you what to do. <laughs> so, so right there, you're like, okay, never mind. You just need someone from Upwork. You just need someone who's a lot less expensive than me. If you just want to boss them around, you're looking for an employee that you don't have to pay health benefits to. So go get one. But if they want someone that's really going to make their business better and is like thinking as a peer, a partner level, they're going to love this. They're going to say, well, you know, Amazon's been making noises about coming into the healthcare space. And so we really feel like if we don't do something now to kind of capture our share of the market, then the window's going to close and they're going to steamroll everybody. They're like, all right, you know, well, how big is the business now? How big do you want it to be? You know, you get into these business owner questions because what you need to find out is not the scope. When you're sitting there trying to figure out scope, you are calculating your cost. And like I said before, your cost matters, but think about it later. Your cost is just as variable as you want it to be. You don't have to do what they asked you to do specifically. You could come up with a better way because you're an expert and they're not. You probably do know a better way than the way that they asked. So you just take it with a grain of salt. They're like, here's all the things we want you to do. Okay, great. I wrote it down. Thanks. Now you're on the why conversation. Why is this the solution? Why not not do this project? What would happen if you didn't do it? Well, Amazon will steamroll us, whatever the answer is. So you say, okay, you've convinced me that you should do this, that this is the right approach, that you have to use software, that you can't just hire a bunch of employees to do this manually. The next thing you want to find out is why now? What changed? Again, Amazon just came into our space or we had a huge year and we need to do something with all this money or there's a hiring crunch and we need to create leverage or we're going to start losing our best clients because we don't have enough manpower to service them. So why now? Why is it urgent? The more urgent, the better it is for you and the more high value it will be to them. And then the last kind, and this is the hardest for people to actually make come out of their mouths, is why someone expensive like me? Why not get someone cheap? Why not have an internal person do it? Why not get an intern? Why not have your cousin Vinny? He's got Photoshop. He's got a text editor. He's got Word. He can write a book. Like, why not do it some cheaper way? And if they answer all of these questions for you in a way that convinces you that you can help, convinces you that you are the right person for this job, and you start to gain a high degree of confidence that, wow, I can really help this person achieve this transformation that they want, this business transformation, and you're going to start to get a sense of what it's worth to the client. You're still not thinking, do not fight it. Fight the urge to solve the problem while you're sitting there. All you're doing is diagnosing the problem. You are not deciding yet if you're going to give this person triple bypass surgery or an antacid. You are just understanding that their chest hurts when they lay down. It goes like this, and I just want that to go away so I can play with my grandkids. And It's all about them, all about them, all about them. Toward the end of the meeting, once you are convinced that you are going to be a good fit, and they have probably convinced themselves that you're going to be a good fit, you've got almost everything you need to write a killer proposal. At some point, you want them to answer a question that's like this. All right, let's say we fast forward six months or 12 months or however long this is going to take, or three months or whatever it is. What does a home run look like? How are you going to know this was a brilliant strategic move for you to, to make? How are you going to know that every penny you paid me was worth it? What's going to be different? So what you're trying to find out here is how they're going to measure the success. And there's something that they are measuring because if they weren't measuring it, they wouldn't know something was wrong. So it will be the thing that they're currently measuring to know that things are wrong. And you'd be like, okay, so that let's just say churn. So right now churns at 50% and in three years, you're going to want to sell and you know that you're going to get three X multiple. But if you only have these many clients, then it's not going to be that valuable to the potential acquirers. So you need to get churned down to 20%, right? So you want to decrease churn from 50% to 20% over 12 months or something. 
Yes. Oh my God. That would be amazing. Can you do that? If you could do that, it would be worth millions of dollars to us. And you know, I'm exaggerating. They might not go that far, but they might. Sometimes they do. So you're like, all right, I don't know if I can get it down 30%. Sounds pretty bad. But what if I could get it down 10%? Oh, that would still be huge. All right. So once you know that, and you just got a rough estimate of how big the company is, which you can do in a hundred different ways if you're clever, you know, just how many employees do they have multiplied by what their salary must be and like their revenue must be X. It's not that hard. So then you've got a value like, okay, the value of this success, the success that I think is realistic based on my years of expertise, I think I can get them down, you know, conservatively 10% for sure. What they told me about the site is horrible. I can see a bunch of standard ways to get churned down. And he told me, or she told me that that would be worth, let's just say a million dollars to the business at the end of the third year or something. Okay. So if we're working with a million dollar transformation, that's the value. It won't be worth more than that to them. Probably there's could be extenuating circumstances, but this is not exact science. Roughly that's the value. That is the maximum they would pay for the desired transformation. If we go back to our first vocabulary words about value and you can say now, all right, so if it's a million roughly, if they're talking to me, they must think that I can make at least a 10% contribution or they wouldn't even be talking to me. Like they think I can help. And then in this meeting, I determined that I think they're right. I think I can help too. So I'm going to take 10% of that million and say, well, if I contribute 10%, then I should be entitled to $100,000. And this is just a general principle. It's a whole separate conversation, but I want people in this scenario to give options in the proposal, three prices. I would recommend a Goldilocks pricing curve, which would be 1x, 2.2x, 5x. So say, okay, if there's a million dollars on the table in value, I'm going to create an option at 100,000. I'm going to create an option at 220,000. And I'm going to create an option at 500,000. And you know, if your jobs are smaller then chop a zero or two off, but the concept is the same. So once you've got these budgets for yourself, I've got a $100,000 budget, I've got a $220,000 budget, and I've got a $500,000 budget. And I know what they're trying to achieve, which is to decrease churn to increase their valuation to, you know, a buyer in a couple of years. What could I do for $100,000 to help them get closer to that transformation? What could I do for $220,000 to help get them closer to that transformation? What could I do? Now you think about scope and you pick a scope that becomes your cost. That's your cost. So you're not going to pick a scope that you would barely want to do for $100,000. You're going to pick a scope that you'd barely want to do for $50,000, price it at $100,000. And if they accept it and the scope creeps, you don't care because you still have tons of profit built in. So all this makes a ton of sense to someone who has experience. And I've done this on occasion, right? It doesn't still work in Israel for all sorts of cultural reasons. Besides, I've moved on to training. Fine. Everyone says that. I do not agree with that. I don't agree <laughs> okay, with that. Maybe. But okay, Fine. keep Fine. going. Everybody says, that sounds great, but it won't work here. Everybody. So it has worked for me on rare occasions, and maybe I didn't approach it the right way. Again, I'm now sort of out of that business. But when it did, it was because they were investing in some company. And they said, what, you're going to charge that much? I said, how much are you investing in this company? Don't you want to make sure the investment is worthwhile? You want me to do like a technical you know, sanity check here? They were like, oh, that's a really good point. My question, though, is... What do you say to the newcomer, the newbie to freelancing? Yeah. Because they cannot say, I have extensive experience. They don't even know really what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So that thing that I just described, value pricing a project, mm -hmm. is uh, dangerous territory that you should definitely do in a very small way if you're not that experienced. So keep the numbers all very small because you will be wrong 
the first two or three times for sure. You will underbid, you will not believe the numbers that you're coming up with and you will underbid yourself and you will regret it. So they need to be small numbers so that you don't shoot yourself in the foot, put yourself out of business, think I'm an idiot, all that stuff. So the more experienced you are, the more leverage you can create with value pricing, but it's not the only way to create leverage. Another way, which I consider sort of a transitional approach is to come up with productized services. I would argue that Ben Manley's website in a day service over at Knapsack, that's a great example of a productized service. It's not transitional for him. I don't believe that he's going to transition that business to something else, but it's been so successful. He just starts other businesses. So it's like, okay, here's this little engine that generates profit. So that's not going to mess with that. You know, I'm putting words in his mouth a little bit, but it's been the same business model for years. So I don't think he's planning on transforming it into some like mega corporation. But the idea is creating a productized service is your opportunity to think about scope first and say, okay, here's a fixed scope service that I'm going to provide at a price published on my website. So for $100, I'll do a web design strategy call with you, or I'll do a content marketing strategy call with you. You know, I've got $1,000, I'll do a business coaching call with you. You just run your credit card, book the time, show up. It takes me an hour. We're done. Everybody's happy. If you're not happy, you get your money back. It's totally systematized. There's no sales call. There's no nothing. And it's even better in that it's sure it's bringing in money, which is of course good, mm -hmm. but it's also giving you exposure to at least potentially many clients. It's basically paying you to get that experience that you will then be able to use down the line in doing value-based stuff. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure if this is exactly what you're saying. One hand, you get experience doing it. And on the other hand, it's a feeder for your bigger offerings. Oh, I hadn't even thought about it. Yeah, yeah. That's a good point too. I was just thinking experience, but right, right. Because people will get to know you and they'll say, well, now that you were so great on that consulting call, I actually want to hire you to do it. Yeah. And it filters out all the tire kickers who are just looking for something cheap. And what do you say to someone who says, okay, all this is fantastic, but like, I just got to pay the rent, right? Like, you know, shouldn't I just do hourly billing because everyone knows what it is and I'm not going to be swimming upstream here. And then sure, I'll switch to it at some point later on. At a certain point, you got to decide how much risk you're willing to take. If you're not willing to take risk, then get a job. That's fine. When you're ready to take some risk, start a business. You know, freelancing is not not starting a business. Most people just don't treat it like starting a business. Most people treat it like a job without benefits. <laughs> so they just like have the employee mentality. I don't even think it's that risky, but okay, maybe it is. You know, people are in different situations. Just get a job. You know, it's fine. Maybe do it later. Put it off. You know, wait till you see a better opportunity. Wait till you've got more skill and you're not as much of a noob. Go work for an agency. Go work for a consulting firm. You know, that's what I did. I didn't go straight solo. I went from corporate job to work my way up at the firm and then went solo. So, and I'm glad I did because I didn't know what consulting was like at all. You know, so that was a really good interim step for me. So it boils down to your risk tolerance. If you have no risk tolerance whatsoever, or your spouse has no risk tolerance, then go work at Google or something like it's fine. But if you're going to be a freelancer, recognize that you're not a web developer, you're a business owner that happens to sell freelance services for the time being, but you're potentially going to transition into productized services, value pricing for your projects, product, maybe you make Shopify apps, or maybe you make WordPress plugins or themes, or maybe you, you know, write a book or courses. So think about your business as more like a business and not just like an employee without a boss or an employee without benefits. I've always thought of the distinction between those concerns. I mean, it's a little like simplistic and I don't know 
scammy sounding or whatever, but like the money while you sleep idea. Yeah. I mean, that's real. So like, are you the owner of something that can generate income when you're not actively doing anything? So I think sleeping is a good way to picture this. Yeah. If you build some kind of leverage in a business, you're getting yourself on the path at least to backfilling, hiring other people to do it. So if you're a freelancer, no matter how much you charge, even if you manage to charge two or $300 an hour, the second you stop laboring, the money stops. Whereas if you're flat pricing, if you're value pricing, if you're doing these other things, you have a path towards earning money when you're not actively laboring. Like for me, that was always kind of a litmus test. Am I building a business or I like the way you put that, do I have a job without benefits? Yeah. Leverage is the key word. If you are not creating something that multiplies your effort, your force, then you're really not building a business. And if you're not building a business, why not just work for someone who is until you figure out how you want to do yours? You know, it's fine. Just work for someone else for a little while. Get a job at the kind of business you think you want to build so you can get like information about how it really works inside and see if that's really what you want. Explore is what I'm saying. Like explore. If you're not ready to like really run a business of one, it's fine if it's just one, but it's still a business. Just explore until you see an opportunity or something you love to do or someone you really want to serve. Like, oh, here's a massively underserved audience that I would love to help. One last thing, I guess, that occurs to me to inquire about is like, let's say that a freelancer listening to this is thinking like, I'm on board with this concept to quote some kind of flat price or to offer a productized service or to value price. But I'm kind of trapped in this situation where I have existing clients and they expect an hourly price or an hourly rate and I'm on Upwork and everybody there wants it. And even when I try to say, hey, I don't bill by the hour, somebody says, hey, well, I'm talking to like four other freelancers, so you need to come up with something so I can compare you. Where they're amenable to it, they're maybe sold on the idea, but it seems like they're stuck. They can't get out of mm -hmm. Like, how do you tell someone like that to approach that with either existing clients or new clients? Like, how do they get out of that and persuade those prospects? Yeah, it's a hard transition to make because you got to change your own mindset and you have to build up the marketing juice to not be just one of many. The I am the one and only. So it takes time. There's a couple of ways to transition. You can go to your existing clients and say, hey, you know, our monthly has kind of been working out to be $4,000. I'd love to just stop tracking time, get that time back, the time tracking. Then you don't have to review timesheets. Let's just call it $4,000 a month. You know, in three months, we'll just check back and see if we're still happy with the amount of output that you've been getting. And I'm happy with the amount of money I've been getting. And then you have more flexibility or more autonomy over your calendar. You can get efficient. Now, all of a sudden, your brain's going to be like, oh, I could automate like five things that I do every week. And then there's no expectation that you're not lying now because you're not paying for hours anymore. So if you've got a long enough history with someone and they, you know, there's trust built up and they think you do a good job, switching over to a regular, it's $4,000 every month is easier for them. And it would be easier for you. And you've taken time out of the equation so you can start to benefit from optimizing things. And I don't think there's nothing unethical about that. If you change the model to $4,000 a month for the kind of output that I've been providing, boom. So that's maybe one way. Another way would be if a client comes along and it's a project, not an ongoing like staff augmentation, which is kind of what I just described. What I just described kind of like staff augmentation. If you're doing actual projects for somebody where like there's going to be a beginning, a middle and an end and they've got a new project for you hey, we're going to redo the network security on the website or something. We want you to do it. Great. Okay. You can talk about success criteria. You can talk about all these other things. And you can give them a proposal that has only two options on it. One of my rare exceptions to the three-option proposal. One is 
eh, I think it'll be about $100 at my $200 an hour. So map out to this. But as you remember from previous estimates, sometimes it goes way over. Sometimes it doesn't, but it's usually never lower. Or instead of that, I'll give you a fixed price of you know, 1.85x, so like an 85% premium on it. And I'll stick to that. And no matter what, we'll get to these outcomes, even if it takes me twice as long as I thought. So they're basically buying an insurance policy that the cost won't go over a particular amount. And I specifically mean an 85% premium. So if the hourly estimate is $10,000, then the fixed price should be eighteen five. But many, many, many organizations, if they're doing budgeting, mm-hmm. they would rather have a fixed known cost, even if it's higher, than a more or less a blank check. And having been on the receiving end of many angry phone calls from clients saying, this costs more than I expected, and why didn't you tell me? And I would say, once again, very honestly, at that point, well, I gave you an estimate, I wasn't sure, and things get complicated. And it's so easy for me to see now in retrospect how everyone was playing their role, but it led to a breakdown in communications, breakdown in trust. And at the end of virtually every project, everyone was dissatisfied. Yeah, it's terrible. Like the quality of life goes through the roof when you start giving fixed prices. All the stress is on you because you're shouldering some of the risk. You need to be compensated for that risk because if you don't, then you could be in danger of going out of business because not everything will go perfectly. Some scopes will creep occasionally, you know, a lot. It's very rare, but it can happen. So you need to have enough profit that you can weather the occasional scope creep. But the quality of life is great. Like all of a sudden people are like, I don't care if the project takes longer anymore because it doesn't cost them any more money. You know, it's a little bit dangerous because inherently in all of these models, you're taking more risk because when you're billing by the hour, you're taking no risk, zero, zero. We'll do picks in a moment. But before we do that, Jonathan, tell people where they can find out more about pricing, value, all this other good stuff, which, I mean, there's a good reason we invite you on because we've heard you talk about this for years and you're really good at it. Thanks. So people want to hear more. Where can they go? Yeah, best place to go is valuepricingbootcamp.com and that'll redirect you to my main site and you can sign up for a six-day free email course that goes in more depth than all of the things that we talked about today. And then after that, you can stay on the list to get my daily emails. Amazing. So Jonathan, did you bring any picks I've got a pick. I wasn't prepared, but I do have one. I'm really excited about this book and I want to send it to all my family and friends for Christmas. It's called Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. And it's not a new book, but I absolutely love it. It affected my worldview. It's like you can't unsee it type of thing. Super, super love that book. So that would be one thing for sure. We actually had her on the show last year. No way. So she's amazing. Yeah, yeah. We interviewed her. Got to intro me. I want to have her on too. She is so, so great. I'll give you the name of her, a PR person. I really enjoyed meeting her and talking to her. Yeah, great book. Very, very practical. Eric, what about you? What you got? Usually I have something kind of topical, but just apropos of nothing, we're traveling and we're in Las Vegas this week and doing a lot of DoorDash. And I found this thing called Crumble, C-R-U-M-B-L. And they deliver these enormous, delicious cookies that are dangerous, but... If you want like gigantic gourmet cookies, I think they're a chain that's going more and more national. I don't know where all they are exactly, but man, were these cookies good. So crumble, C-R-U-M-B-L. Okay. And I just finished a fantastic book, which I'm going to recommend. It's called Because Internet. It's by Gretchen McCullough. It was a bestseller apparently like two years ago. So I'm slowly getting to the curve. And I've heard her before. She's a linguist who runs this great podcast called Lingthusiasm. 
which if you're into linguistics is really great. And she goes through and talks about how the internet is changing language and really like interesting, interesting points. And I must say, I now finally get emojis. I'm old, right? So like, I've always been like, oh my God, kids can't write. And so because they can't write, they compensate with emojis. And actually now I think I have a much better hold on it and I am less scornful of them to a large degree. But it's a fun, interesting, great book that if you're interested in all language or the internet, certainly the intersection of the two, fun, fun stuff. All right. Well, Jonathan, thank you once again for being on. This was a great pleasure. Great to see you guys again. And uh, thanks to all of our listeners, of course. If you have suggestions, ideas, thoughts, we would be happy to hear from you. And we'll be back next time on The Business of Freelancing.